0: Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health
1: professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and leader of the healthcare practice at Retzel and Andres. And today we have a very special guest, Amy Anderson, who's joining us from Brinson Anderson and Amy is a specialist in working with practices, in particular, those that are engaged in plastic surgery and aesthetics in order to grow and help their practices become successful. So welcome, Amy. Thank you, thanks for having me. My pleasure. And today we're gonna talk about the topic about how to find the right people for your practice. And what that really means is the people that are come in, join your practice, help it to grow the most that it could grow. And that also will be a good reflection of the practice's brand, which is super important when it comes to plastic surgery and aesthetics. So this is a really interesting topic. So let's jump right in. And why don't we kind of have you tell us basically your thoughts on this topic and, and take us through the points that you think are important to cover.
1: Absolutely. Well, it I, I work with dozens of of aesthetic practices, and I can say with confidence that the number one problem that every practice seems to be facing is around staffing. And how do we find the right people uh, that are that have the skill set and the experience that we're looking for? the licensure if required, depending on the role they're in, and then ultimately who's going to be a reflection of the brand. And I remind physicians how important it is to hire slowly and to really make sure that any employee brought onto the team is fully vetted and because every interaction they have with patients is a reflection back on the physician and that aesthetic provider. And even to the degree that I I have heard patients say, if my experience was this bad trying to make an appointment, I can't imagine what this doctor's like, right? And like, it kind of blows our minds, but if they have a poor experience with the front desk or with the intake process, there's this correlation that the doctor must not have it all together. And so obviously that's a worst case scenario that we want to avoid. So I work a lot with practices on how to really fine tune their interview process to find and attract the best people uh, for the job. And I think it starts with anytime there's an opening that we pause, we you know we tend to have this anxiety of somebody just resigned, somebody's leaving, we need to fill the job as quickly as possible. And listen, I get it, like you have busy schedules, most practices can't afford to have a gap. However, it's a prime a premium time to pause and say, who is it that I really need in this job? Let's think about the job duties, uh, think about the responsibilities. A lot of time in practices, job duties get shifted over time. And we may now have a person doing a role that doesn't really make sense, but that previous person kind of absorbed it. So it's a, it's a great time to just take a fresh look at the job description, and reassess what is it that's actually needed. It doesn't need to be a three-day process, um, but maybe 30 minutes to to run through that job description and confirm.
0: And do you find that uh, people are resistant? You know, one of the things when I work with practices and they've done things a certain way, um, it's hard for them to accept that there might be a better way to do it, or they have Mm -hmm. certain people that they trust and, they do such a good job in multiple different roles Mm -hmm. and either they're, you know, resistant to making those changes or the people that hold those roles feel like, you know, they're being somehow downgraded or, uh, Mm -hmm. diminished by those changes, which can make it really hard to, to, you know, put improvements into place.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, managing staff through change is, is a big part of it. Um, everything that's, you know, may have a logical or rational decision, you know, reason behind it, there's also an emotional component. And so supporting um, people through changes if it means changing their job duties in this process. You know, one of the things when we look at job descriptions um, that I focus in on heavily, and and I'm, I'm sure, Erica, that you get involved in this as well, is what is the licensure or certification required for these job duties? We see this a lot in aesthetics. There's a lot of misinformation or just lack of knowledge about scope of practice and who is legally allowed to provide certain treatments and run specific devices. Cause as you know, it's a it's a state by state and, and sometimes maybe even city or county um, by county ordinances as to who has certain scope of practice. So for example, um, I live in Indianapolis and Indiana tends to be one of the looser states in terms of what physicians are able to delegate to a member of their staff. So, you know, in in that regard, as a, a medical assistant, which we know is not a license, it's a it's a job title. It's on the job training in most in most areas. Um, can perform certain functions, up to and including injecting neurotoxins, fillers, running lasers as a delegated. Uh, task from a physician. It still requires oversight and training. It doesn't mean they can just, you know, evaluate and, and diagnose and, and treat patients independently, but they can run those, those devices. Whereas, uh, I have a, a surgeon in Alabama who he is the only one in his practice that can inject as a physician. He's, he, you know, the PAs and NPs even are not able to inject in that state. So, there's so much variety and I feel like there's a lot of misinformation around this. Do, are you seeing that as well? Definitely, um,
0: I think that also if if practices do things and they know that other practices do it, they assume they're doing it properly, right? right. I hear the excuse all the time. Well, that's how everybody does it, right? But mm-hmm. the laws are very uh, quickly changing in many states. I recently was working with a doctor in one state where she had been doing you know, the same thing as everyone else for many, many years, had a great practice and um, only recently found out that the law had changed. And she wasn't aware of the change in law when she called around, none of her colleagues knew, uh, the medical board didn't know. And the effect of this law really was to change exactly Who could delegate? Who services could be delegated to? um, Who could supervise those services? And it would have a huge impact on her practice because, in many of these practices, the way they're able to grow and become so successful financially is that the doctor doesn't need to be there all the time overseeing everything. Once someone's trained, they can have multiple mid-levels or, or other people doing some of these services. Well, if the doctor is the one that has to be doing everything or has to be there physically to supervise or people who previously were able to do it, but now let's say it's only a mid-level and not a regular RN or, or MA that can do it, it changes your practice structure. It changes the volume that you can achieve. It changes your financials. It has a huge impact. And in that case, she was able to get together with colleagues and they achieved uh, some changes uh in the law actually and got some delays on something so you know there but that is just one little example and i think we're going to see changes like that and i guess the question is who's behind those changes i'm Mm -hmm. not sure uh i think you know a lot of physicians are opposed to the delegation of services to non-physicians. So we're seeing some of that in some states as people are more vocal than others, right? In um, mm-hmm. you know, in other states, it may be even the non, different types of non-physicians uh, mm-hmm. fighting amongst themselves or who has the right training, et cetera. So it is really important, you know, and I guess one thing we should mention is that if you're not compliant, it's not just a financial outcome, but it could be a violation of the Medical Practice Act and the state that the doctor's practicing, uh, as well as the licensure of those individuals working in your office. So there, it's not just like, oops, we made a mistake. You can actually get investigated and get in trouble. And if you're looking, potentially to sell your practice down the road, that can have a huge implication. So yeah, these licensing issues are, are tricky mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I don't think people pay
1: enough attention to them. I, I agree. And it's, it's a huge area of risk for a lot of practices and it doesn't have to be. I mean, it's a little bit of time with a healthcare attorney like yourself and your team, you know, periodically let's just reevaluate, let's make sure we're still in our scope of practice um, and just know that we're doing it the right way. Yes, there are some financial implications, but we can work around that. Uh, we can be creative um, if if you're in a state that is more restrictive, but it, it's just, it's not worth the risk, um, you know, to have people practicing right. outside of their license.
0: Right. And I'll mention one other thing that in some states they're very strict about the number of different types of uh, people that you can supervise, right? right? So if you have a practice, you may be limited how many MAs, how many uh, mm-hmm. nurses, how many PAs, how many APNs mm-hmm. or nurse practitioners. So uh, you're kind of limited by state law as well. And not everybody realizes that again, for a doctor, that can be a violation of their medical practice act.
1: Yes, that's a great point. And my final note on that is you know, this is not meant to be a bash on industry, but I'm not going to I wouldn't suggest taking the word of the laser device rep as to who <laughs> can run their laser. Um, some are knowledgeable, some are not. They're ultimately trying to sell you a device. And so um, like them, we you know, they're great people, but we don't want our medical or I'm sorry, our legal advice coming from the, the laser salesperson. <laughs>
0: Right. That's a great point. I've actually said that before on this podcast, that a lot of doctors, when we get involved with them, all of their information came from the rep. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, it's, you know, you're right. Sometimes they're like, go talk to your lawyer or mm-hmm. the advice they gave was very, was correct. But mm-hmm. in many cases, it's like at a conference, like a med spot conference or something like that, where they bought the laser, or the equipment, and, um, they take it as the Holy grail of advice and mm-hmm. assume that it's correct. And people don't realize that state laws can vary so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for practices that may cross over. Uh, state lines. And there's Mm -hmm. quite a few um, Mm -hmm. that do that. You know, you can see a difference right there. So even if you have licenses in multiple states and you have some of your staff crossing over those state lines, you have to know what every state requires. So Really great point. Um, you know, one related thing to think about also is that the supervision of the service is one thing. And I don't maybe you know more about this even than I do, but uh, a lot of times, even if you could supervise a service, there needs to be like at least an initial visit with Mm -hmm. a doctor. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realize that they, they're aware of the supervision rules, um, Mm -hmm. and they do those just perfectly, but Mm -hmm. they don't document a physician visit initially. And Mm -hmm. I've had some of our docs get in trouble for that too. So.
1: It's a great point. Um, you know, some States refer to it as a good faith exam. You know, there's different vocabulary around it, but you're absolutely right. There it's, an area that can be lacking, and again, it doesn't. We can we help a lot of practices come up with an efficient way to do that. It doesn't need to be a thirty minute visit with a physician. A lot of them are a very brief um, encounter, but ultimately, the physician is diagnosing and recommending a treatment plan. Right? We we can't delegate that to most lower level um, licensures or, or positions, and so that that physician still has to retain um, that piece of it.
0: Exactly right. All right. So we know what we need to hire for our practice. How do we narrow it down? And and I guess are there people out there looking for jobs? You know, we heard about the job market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are there really good people out there to find?
1: There definitely are. Um, you know, the landscape has changed, but they're there's still very much an active workforce and and people who are either in another position and and looking for a change for whatever reason sometimes they're relocating sometimes they're just ready for growth or a new experience um you know a variety of things so i i've not had problems at this point finding good candidates um but i i do think it takes good interview skills um and so my my first piece of advice is to start with a video interview because you pretty much know within about two minutes or less, if this is somebody you're interested in. And it can be a giant waste of time to bring them into the office. I I think it's a waste of their time. If somebody's sitting in front of me, I feel this obligation to spend at least 20 minutes with them, right? I'm I'm extending this, this interview, even if I know immediately this isn't the right fit. So, using video technology um, that pretty much everyone is adept with now, since you know the pandemic, whether it's FaceTime or Zoom or Teams or you know you name your video platform, um, and I introduce it as an in, uh, introductory screening interview. So I'm setting that precedent, that it's going to be short. Um, but it's amazing, even how how much it tells you about a person. How where they decide to take this interview, how they present for it. You know, do they dress like it's an interview? Or do they have a messy bun on their hair and a, a t- <laughs> t-shirt, you know, slouchy t-shirt on? Like they're just talking to a girlfriend. Um, they're sitting in their car, right? Or they're, yes. yeah. That's exactly. And you know, I'll be forgiving if they're in their car, if it's scheduled around their their lunch break or something. I, you know, I have to be a little flexible right. there, but um, you know, I want to know the circumstances of it. I hope they're not driving in their car that would be different. <laughs> That's but, so The video interview has been a big time saver for a lot of my practices just to do that initial screening. But once you find somebody like, definitely bringing them in. And I encourage um, practices to get other employees involved, that it's not just the physician or the main provider um, or just the manager, that we get other perspectives. um, Because I think everybody kind of picks up different elements. And ultimately we're we're hiring for the team. This person's gonna be working with your other team members. And so we want to ultimately make sure it's going to be a good fit culturally, that this is somebody who seems like they get it, that they seem like they're a reflection of the brand, who kind of has similar, um, not necessarily personality, but work styles. Uh, and because no two practices are the same. And I do think there is this misconception that well, if this applicant worked for this other premier dermatologist or this other well-known plastic surgeon, they're going to be great in my practice. And that's not necessarily true. I often say interviews like dating. Uh, you know, when you when you're dating and you meet some great people out there that have good you know strengths, good attributes, but they're not the right fit for you. Right? And, and so we wish them well, but it doesn't mean we get married to every nice person that we go on a date with. And I right. would say the same thing about interviewing, that we have to really feel that connection and make sure it's truly going to be a right fit for the practice for the long term.
0: That makes sense. And so when you're talking with them, um, I mean, obviously you're looking for enthusiasm uh, for the position. Um, a an explanation for why they're interested in a particular industry. So those would be real pluses. Are there personality things that are red flags for you that you see that maybe they won't be a, a good fit for a practice in general?
1: Um, I would say I, I listen to what they say as much as what they don't say. You know, reading that body language, I'm always asking why are they considering changing jobs? Um, if they're, you know, leaving a, a current position, I'm listening, frankly, for drama, um, for indication that they didn't get along with somebody. And, and listen, that happens. I'm realistic. But then I want to know why. And I am gonna dig into some details and say, Oh, tell me more about that. And really, right. um, you know, how somebody presents it can be very telling. So any kind of sign of drama is a red flag. If it's coming up on on the first interview, it's probably going to become more apparent once, once they're working for you. Um, and I I'll often tell people go with your gut. If something just seems off, it probably is. And anytime I, I feel like we've tried to rationalize or explain away something that was a little funny, it always comes back around to bite us. Like the, it's always like, no, we kind of knew when we interviewed that they, there was something off and we tried to make sense of it. And then it just really gets amplified once they're hired and and in the practice. So what does your process look like then
0: after your video interview? You kind of narrow it down and and then what happens?
1: So definitely then um, moving my top two to three um, to an in-person interview in the office. Like I said, getting other people involved. Um, I do like to have them sign a confidentiality agreement and then shadow for a few hours. Uh, because I think it makes a difference. Everybody's idea of a busy practice um, is a little bit different. Is Some people will say 20 patients a day is busy, where others will scoff and say, no, trying to do 60 or 70 a day, that's busy. So I want them to see what busy actually is, um, whether they're front desk or medical assistant or, or a provider themselves. If This is a nurse injector or somebody that we're hiring. Um, I want them to have a realistic idea of, of practice volume. Um, of what the workflows look like. And I find during those shadows, um, those shadowing interviews, you learn a lot more information. They tend to be more relaxed. They're maybe not sitting with the manager or the doctor, they're sitting with a prospective colleague or coworker and they become a little bit more loose-lipped as well and start sharing more information. Um, And so I think I've just had a lot of good experiences with the shadowing, either solidifying this person gets it. Like they seem to be even recognizing in the EHR what needs to happen. You know, they just seem to be really switched on or other times where they just seem like a deer in the headlights and lost and we're going, "Mm, maybe this isn't really gonna be the right fit after all.
0: So when you're first looking for candidates, so how do you make sure that you're kind of advertising that position in a way that you're gonna, you know, get the right people. I mean, you don't want to do video interviews with people that aren't the right fit where there's a total disconnect about what you're looking for. So first of all, I guess, where do you recommend practices advertised for the people they're looking for? And then how do we write those advertisements in a way so that you get good candidates on the video and then good candidates kind of coming in? Are there like certain keywords so that you know you got it right by the time you're meeting them in person?
1: you know it's a little bit of an art and science and i wish i had a perfect formula because it takes a lot of time to screen resumes and then to do the the screening interviews um i do i do not post a full job description online cuz i just think it's a lot and most people don't read every line of it so i condense it into a job ad that is summarizing the key points of you know what you must bring to this role and the the tasks and duties that you're going to do. Um, I believe in very being very honest and transparent. Let's not lie about the job or make it sound like something it's not. Like we should be very straightforward with with what it is. Um, and then I, you know, my I, I'm not necessarily partial to any of the online platforms. In in my company we use Indeed primarily. Um, it just it has worked well for us. It has the tools and things that we need. Um, LinkedIn for manager positions and um, sometimes the provider or nurse positions, and then there's one called Healthy Careers um, that is good for physicians, uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, those those higher licensed individuals. Um, but really, I'm I'm living mostly on Indeed. Indeed does allow you to add screening questions that they have to answer. Um, I utilize them, but I don't necessarily rule out a resume based on the answer because they, they can kind of answer however they like. And so, you know, it helps narrow it down. But I think after what you just kind of develop an eye for looking at resumes and not just seeing if they've had the exact same experience because often they don't, but what are some relatable traits that that could transfer over to this job. So if they've worked, if I'm hiring a front desk person and they've worked in hospitality elsewhere, you know, at at a higher end hotel chain or a fine dining establishment, okay, I'm interested because I'm going to um, hope and assume that there's some degree of customer service that's kind of ingrained in them, um, that that they're attracted to that type of role. And then I can teach them the tasks of, of our office can't necessarily teach that uh, um, hospitality type mindset.
0: I guess you know one
1: of the things I always notice about my
0: plastic surgery aesthetic type practices how how pretty <laughs> everybody is, right? Like everybody's very good looking. Everybody, you know, not everybody, but you know, they're all very into their appearance for the most part. Uh, they are stylish. They they take care of themselves, et cetera. Uh, and I guess those are probably the people that are very attracted to this industry also because mm-hmm. those are, that are important to them. Um, obviously, you can't advertise for that, but I assume that when you when you advertise, you say it's a plastic surgery aesthetic practice, and does that is it a magnet for those kind of people? I mean, I assume you're not just choosing the pretty people, right? Right,
1: right. Well, some of my doctors tend to have that be their number one criteria, and I, I steer them away from that. But um, yes, I do indicate what type of practice it is. And I do think the person has to be interested in this specialty and in just a Aesthetics in general, because you know, if if you don't care about it, it can be difficult to relate to patients who you know who are seeking these services. And I, I think in any any industry, you need to believe in what you're selling and and what you're accommodating and, and treating. And so um, it does seem to to lend itself um, a lot. One line I use in my job ads and job descriptions is a neat, polished appearance. Um, It's not saying you have to be pretty, but I am setting this expectation that there is a a polish and a finesse that you have to bring. It's not wearing wrinkled scrubs and messy hair every day, right? Like we do have some some expectations. I, I also want to caution on you know the the maybe too enthusiastic user of aesthetic treatments who comes in a little bit overfilled and you know, <laughs> having a distorted look. And if they're a reflection of you, and patients will assume that your right. doctor or your provider is the one who who did those treatments. And I mean, I does if <laughs> they say, don't look good, right? But yes, if they're over injected and and have too much of an extreme look, and that's not your aesthetic, your your whole angle is we get very natural looking results that can be a disconnect because, you know, it, and and those are the tough situations to navigate. Again, I don't necessarily just rule somebody out from the beginning, but they need to really be, you know, the best candidate in all other areas. And then we do have to talk about that.
0: um, Oh my God. I I think I would be, (laughs) <laughs> wondering the whole time what what they were thinking about the treatments that I needed. I've had, I work with a lot of aesthetic doctors and that when we talk on video, I'm always like thinking, you know, sometimes I'll say, you should come stop by. and see my office and I'm thinking that's like code for, we should take care of those, you know, <laughs> I do get over there, right? So, you know, I, I understand it is very, uh, a certain aesthetic and you need people that kind of fit that aesthetic or that vibe. And that's true of any business. And obviously you have to be very careful. There's so many questions that you can't ask when you're interviewing someone, right? And we can't choose people, you know, taking into account anything that, you know, is illegal. Um, in terms of their, their age, their sex, their whatever it is. So, but I guess the idea really is to promote it as a job. That's the right fit for the right person. Right. Right. Um, You're not going to want to work there if you think, you know, plastic surgery is stupid and nobody should do it. That's not a good fit. Right. So we're going to try and find those right people. Um, Now, have you, I I guess this is kind of a weird question, but when, when you want to hire someone, you think it's a good fit, do the doctors, kind of defer to you or do they chime in and have you ever disagreed I'd be curious as to kind of what the difference of opinion comes down to because you get a lot of experience you know but a lot of doctors may feel like you know they know better obviously so how does that work out
1: Well, so usually when I'm working with a practice, we will take on that legwork of posting the ads, doing all those screenings, and then lining up two to three people for them to meet so that, you know, we're really protecting their time. Absolutely, the doctor has to meet the potential candidates, and it is ultimately their decision. So we usually have dialogue about it. If I'm not going to pass along to them somebody that I don't think is qualified. um, You know, we might... Kind of go back and forth of who of the final candidates is best fit. Um, but ultimately it's their practice it's their business and I will give them you know my opinions um but you know I, I don't have a crystal ball either and so we're all kind of it, it's a little bit of a gamble when you hire a new employee we don't have that certainty. Um, another thing I hear a lot is well I just want to make sure she's going to stay here for a really long time. I'm really sorry. There's never any guarantee of that. No matter what the person tells you, you know, that's always a potential risk. So, you know, I see myself as an advisor. Um, I'm definitely an advocate of the practice. And then I'm going to support whatever decision the physician uh, makes, unless it was something egregious, like they don't have a license to do the job that you want them to do. Then I would say, you know, I can't be part of this. But Uh, that's really never happened to me. So um, once they make their selection, then often we will facilitate doing the background check. You cannot skip on the background check. For me, that's a must on every position. Um, And then uh, checking references. I I do strongly believe in references. Um, If they've ever worked for another physician I prefer if we can do a physician to physician phone call because it, it just seems to garner a lot more information than the calling the HR department or calling. them, You kind of get the standard just confirmation that they worked there. But if we're trying to get a good reference, um, I do ask for a, a physician reference if if they've had that experience before. Maybe. And then one final thing that I I think um, I'm utilizing more that I think is helpful for practices. Sometimes we are doing some assessments in, like some skills assessments. So I've, I've had a lot of practices recently frustrated with the um, written communication of some of their staff, whether it's email to a patient or how they're writing in the chart, that the grammar is not very good, the, there's a lot of misspellings. And so I've been given I've given some um, applicants writing tests, and it's as simple as when they're in person. I put them at a computer with a blank, you know, document. And I, I have to give them a topic. Like I don't want it to be technical because they may have never worked in, in aesthetic. So I'll say write two to three paragraphs about the last vacation that you took, right? Something like anybody can write about and it just helps you see, can they write, can they write cohesive sentences? Do they use the proper punctuation? Does it make sense? I give them, you know, 15 minutes or so to do it again. It's a low pressure thing. Uh, But it's very telling as to what will their written communication look like in the practice. What do you
0: find on average? (laughs) I'm really curious about that.
1: Um, I find average. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I guess I... My I have to manage my expectations. If I, you know, if it's not a marketing position, that's going to be heavily right. writing. Um, I'm, I really just want to make sure they're using proper context and grammar. And right. most of the time, most of the time they are, and it's also setting the precedent that this is very important to us. And the right. way we communicate ha- has to be polished both verbally and in writing. And so right. the fact that we do it in the interview, I think is also sending a message you know, when we go along into training that this is this is so important for us. Wow, I think that's great.
0: I've never heard of anybody doing that. You know, a lot of times in other industries, you might do personality tests mm-hmm. or you might like, for example, if I'm hiring, you know, somebody in law, I might be looking for a writing sample, mm-hmm. right? But it's really mm-hmm. interesting to have them do it on the spot. And, you know, a lot of people working in Durham and aesthetic offices and plastic surgery office, a lot of them, especially front desk and uh, younger nurses, injectors, whatever, they can be young right Mm -hmm. so maybe they have graduated in the past five years or or 10 years i can only say having you know two kids in college myself and one in high school that things have really changed and i'll be really curious talk to you again in a few years and see what you see but you know they don't know how to write by Mm -hmm. hand at all and Mm -hmm. they uh, they rely on spell and grammar check and their abilities to kind of do it on their own Mm-hmm. is limited and mm-hmm. with the emphasis really on kind of stem in school and technology mm-hmm. in becoming almost a lost art to be able to speak properly not in slang not in like i sometimes i don't even understand what my kids are saying uh, <laughs> but you know and i try to say to them and you know it's a very hard lesson for a young professional person to learn that you you know you have to speak and uh, professionally and talk in a certain way. So it can be a learning experience. And I, I think that's really interesting. If they were not ready when they took your little test mm-hmm. and that they'll be ready for the next one.
1: Right, exactly. Right?
0: Yes. So I, I think that's really a really great piece of advice and uh, for any practice actually, but. Um, All right. So any final pieces of advice here on what people should be thinking about when they're looking to hire, when they're going through that hiring process and those key things that you want uh, plastic surgeons and aesthetic practices to think about when they're looking for the right person to work for them?
1: Yeah, I, I really think it goes back to it ultimately needs to feel like the right person. And I'm not trying to be like so you know, soft and and everything, but like there, it does need to be that good fit. And we often say in aesthetics and certainly in plastic surgery, our patients are making emotional decisions to have these treatments, right? They're in the practice because there's something they're self-conscious about and they want you to not just make them look better, the look better is to make them feel better. And I think that's important to really think about. And every one of our employees, have to get that, have to have that innate ability to connect with patients, to truly genuinely care, to you know have those soft skills. And so I think that applies in hiring as well. I wanna really connect with this person and feel like this is my person. I, he or she can be part of this team and um, I think they're gonna be a good fit. And then just the final note is not to undervalue um onboarding so often we get to that final we've hired them yes we're so excited okay and then our work here is done and it's not it's only just started and the ultimate success of employees does depend on investing a little bit of time in just planning out their first week even what are they going to do each day for a week Um, Who are they spending time with? I heavily believe in shadowing all positions in the practice. It doesn't need to be for a whole day, but an hour or two in each role. So they understand how everyone's connected, how the work they're doing is connected to their coworkers. Um, Too often we work in silos and then we have like this collision from the front office to the back office. They don't understand why they can't get things right, Um, Right. but they don't understand that full workflow. So And I guess, after,
0: and, and the whole training process doesn't stop after one week, right? Of course I mean, not. <laughs> I guess the practice has to really be invested in helping that person be successful,
1: right? And it's hard. It's hard because training takes time, and it slows things down. And and no practice I've ever met says, "Oh, we have all the time in the world for this." Right? Everyone's busy. Um, And that's why I don't want it to all fall on one person. If we can spread out having different parts of training performed by different people in the practice. So it's not all on one. Um, And then the manager or physician, depending on the structure of your practice, you need to check in very regularly at minimum weekly, but that first week, even every day, how are things going? Making sure they're progressing, how are they feeling like this is a good fit? Asking your other employees, how are things going? Um, because we can make a lot of changes quickly in the beginning. The longer they're there, the more challenging it can be to to redirect. That's excellent advice. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, if you're thinking of hiring for your practice,
0: and and by the way, this is great advice, not just for plastic surgery and aesthetic practices, but this is hiring and what it really looks like in any physician practice. Um, and, you know, I almost... Think sometimes there should be a refresher when you've had somebody working in your practice for many years your staff is there you know they lose a little bit of that enthusiasm for how patients are treated and how they interact with patients so this is good advice whether you're hiring or you have a long-term staff to really think about the impression that they give patients coming to the practice which helps your practice be more successful so Thank you so much for joining us today, Amy, and we will uh, share your contact information. If anybody has any questions or would like to use Amy's services, we'll have all of her information and you can reach out directly to her. Uh, if anything I said here leads to a question, you can feel free to ask me, but I think Amy's more the expert on this topic. Um, and we hope you'll come on and, and talk about some other topics again soon. I would love to, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This is the Health Law Hotspot and you can catch more of our episodes at ralaw.com and we'll see you next time. Thanks. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice. And you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.